In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Christ is risen, truly He is risen. I will begin by reading the pastoral letter from His Grace Bishop Yusuf. My beloved children, Christ is risen, truly He is risen. I wish you a joyous, glorious feast of the resurrection. Christ's ministry gave special attention to four important elements in life, which are family, friends, forgiveness, and faith. His resurrection initiated a new beginning in Him with four features accompanying life's journey, which are hope, happiness, healing, and heaven. The Lord's focus was never just on our sins, but on how to make us better. During the Holy Great Fast, we became acquainted with broken families, marital discord, loneliness, and helplessness. By these examples, the Holy Gospel narrated to us the sufferings and humiliation people endure, whether it be through social, emotional, or financial hardships. Yet Christ's message was on building our spiritual resilience for which we must strive. His conversations were to lead us to salvation. He encountered every type of misery to allow us to see ourselves in these individuals and take note of our own weaknesses. We can recognize something in these lost souls that resembles some unflattering traits in ourselves and may finally realize that as he drew near to them with compassion, he sees us in our wretched state. If only we would allow him to make us whole, we would find true peace, for he is the king of peace. His words and actions profess his amazing love. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Through his death and resurrection, he is rebuilding us. He is reconstructing our thoughts and our hearts, as prophesied by Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How can we refer to Israel as a virgin when she often played the harlot by consistent idolatry and abandoning God for greedy pursuits to gain worldly power, riches, and the pride of life? What hurt Christ the most were not the whips, nor the cross, nor the tomb, because His love covered our shame. What hurts Him the most even until now is the destruction of the family. He gently provided a profound message on preserving marriage and restoring the family union. The disassembling of the family has been a key weapon at Satan's disposal from the beginning. He tried to sow a wedge between Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and his siblings, and Saul and Jonathan. The prodigal son and the Samaritan woman were also products of the vicious attacks on marriage and the family and the outcome of discord is more and more evident in today's societies and toxic cultures. Godly friends are harder and harder to find. Even the Lord encountered disloyal friends. Out of twelve, only one, St. John the Beloved, stayed by his side during his hardest time and proved to be the truest friend and disciple. Though this is the only disciple who did not endure martyrdom, his faithful proximity to the Lord during his crucifixion and death may have been much harder to endure than if he had been martyred himself. He also stepped up to care for St. Mary for the remaining years of her life. With all the pain that Christ endured and could barely breathe while he was hung on the cross, he had tried to secure a safe shelter for his dear mother, whom he highly esteemed. It is no wonder that our early church fathers fought vehemently against all heresies that denied that St. Mary is the mother of God. The Holy Resurrection is not just a miracle, but it is the transformative power of Christ's resurrection in converting stony hearts that is more astounding. No acts of miracles and no persuasive rhetoric convinced a forgiven career thief, but he swiftly took paradise by his sincere repentance. Faith captivated the centurion whose life would end in martyrdom, 
and happiness was found at the empty tomb by a hopeful servant who had been exercised of seven demons. The Lord's greatest joy was and still is in healing relationships. Thus the restoration of the Apostle Peter was foremost in his healing agenda to rebuild relationships. Let us build and rebuild not merely buildings and structures, but marriages, families, and godly relationships. Onward to heaven, the Lord led his disciples to witness his ascension, and unto the heaven we must fix our eyes and confidently and joyfully striving to enter into his kingdom. We pray for our honored Father and Patriarch, His Holiness Pope Tawadris II, and beseech the Lord to preserve His life upon His throne for many years and peaceful times. God bless you, and assign His Grace Bishop Yusuf, the Bishop of the Diocese of the Southern United States, and also the Auxiliary Bishops, Bishop Basil and Bishop Gregory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I wanted to just, for a couple of minutes, talk about the Feast of the Resurrection, and how it sort of uh, coincides with a feast that in the Old Testament that was celebrated uh, that I think we can learn a lot if we make these connections between the two feasts. The feast in the Old Testament that is sort of a foreshadowing of the Feast of the Resurrection is called the Feast of the First Fruit. From Leviticus it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you are brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So this is God commanding Moses to keep the feast of the first fruits once they enter into the promised land. This the harvest, the first fruit harvest happen usually around March and April. So the first fruits has to deal with the barley harvest. That's why he's talking about a sheaf of, of wheat. A sheaf is just sort of like a bundle of, of, of wheat. So God instructed the Israelites that before they sort of reap all the barley harvest that they're going to take in, that they take the first sheaf, the first bundle of, of barley, and they take that to the priest who would wave it in front of God. And as the priest was waving it sort of left to right, it was symbolizing that this bundle represented the entire crop. And what they were saying is like, until God received this sacrifice, or until the people brought this bundle in front of God, the rest of the crop is not acceptable. So they did this to acknowledge, to thank God for their coming harvest, and to ask God to bless their harvest. It's supposed to be like a joyous occasion that God, the one who gives them the first fruits, also going to bless the rest of the harvest. And in addition to waving the bundle before God, they were supposed to offer a burnt offering and a drink offering, and they're not supposed to eat or drink or continue the harvest until they made this first fruit offering to God. And actually there's a very specific day, if you were paying attention to the reading, on which they were supposed to do this. It doesn't give a date, like what date it should supposed to be done, but it says, following the feast of the unleavened bread, this feast was to occur on the day after the Sabbath. So this feast is supposed to be on the first day of the week after the Passover. The feast of the first fruits. 
So now maybe it's starting to become clear that there is foreshadowing happening that in this feast is speaking about the resurrection. And St. Paul actually, he lays it out in the Pauline epistle that we read today very clearly. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruit, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So Christ fulfilled the feast of the first fruits by being the first fruits of the resurrection. There were other people in the Bible, people like Lazarus, people like Jairus' daughter, that had been raised from the dead prior to Christ's resurrection. But there was a difference. They were resurrected back to their old bodies, which would eventually die again. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the first to rise in His new glorified body, never to die again. So He is that sheath, He is that first bundle, the first of the harvest that is waved in front of God in celebration and with thanksgiving. If you think about the feast of the first fruits that I read about in Leviticus, the person has to take a bundle and he has to bring it to the priest. What happens when he takes that bundle and he cuts it from the field and he carries it into the city? He leaves, obviously, a small spot, an empty spot left behind. When Christ rose from the dead, he left behind him a small vacant spot, which still remains today as a reminder of his resurrection, the empty tomb. And the same way that the, the bundle was waved to represent the entire harvest, so the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just for Himself. He represented all of the people, the people that He says in the Gospel of St. Matthew will come from the East and the West that have faith in Him and be raised from the dead as well. As the offerings that were made in the Feast of the fruit, uh, First Fruits, they were a sweet savor to God. How much greater the sweetness of our Lord Jesus Christ on the day He's risen from the dead. Also, another connection, the fact that the rest of the crop was not acceptable until the first fruits were waved in front of God. So it took the resurrection of Christ to make us acceptable before God. St. Paul says in Romans, who was delivered up, talking about Christ, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And that's why today is a joyous occasion. We thank God that death could not hold Christ down. But rather, like we say in the hymn of the resurrection, he trampled down death by his death. What does it mean for us personally? That what is the personal fulfillment of this feast of the first fruits? The good thing about the word first fruits is the word first. If there's a first, that means then there are others who are going to follow. And hopefully that includes you and I. That's what St. Paul was teaching in the passage from the Corinthians that we just read. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he says, death came by man, also 
by man comes the resurrection of the dead. And he says, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Christ the first fruit, afterwards those who are Christ at His coming. So St. Paul is reminding us that our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection if we belong in Him and have faith in Him. He has been raised and has a new glorified body, but the same will happen to each one of us if we remain faithful to Him in the proper time. Notice by the way this command from God to Moses in the book of Leviticus. When did He give it to them? He didn't give it to them when they were in the promised land. He gave it to them when they were still in the wilderness. And they wouldn't celebrate it until they entered the land. But they were informed about it and were expected to tell their children about the command. If they were to hear this command, the Israelites probably had sort of mixed feelings. A little bit of frustration mingled with hope. They knew what was ahead of them, that they were going to go into the promised land, but they didn't obtain it yet. They were reminded of their present reality, walking in the wilderness, but they were promised a world to come. This feast is a promise from God that He will bring them where He wants them to be. Christ's resurrection is that for us. We know what lies ahead for those of us who stay faithful to Him, even though we have yet to obtain it ourselves. We're reminded, unfortunately, daily of our present reality. But we are also promised a new world to come. If you think about the imagery of a grain of wheat going down into the ground, like our Lord Jesus Christ said, He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ are the many seeds. We are the many seeds that He spoke about. He fell into the ground and died, but He did not remain there. He rose again, and in that same way, the many seeds, those of us who believe in Him will do likewise. We'll have a new body, like His glorified body. St. Paul says also in chapter 15, There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. But we shouldn't think that we're just supposed to wait until the return of Christ in order to have this new life. No, the, the personal aspect of the first fruits reminds us that we are now, even now, new creations. Yes, we still live in a fallen world. Yes, we still have a fallen body that brings with it lots of issues, lots of temptations, lots of desires. But thanks be to God that in our baptism, we are born again, become a new creation, and been given the Holy Spirit to be in us, and to transform us what we could not transform in ourselves. Our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection initiated this new life. And as the first fruits, His resurrection now gives resurrection life to those who die in Him. In other words, when those of us who repent, 
change our ways, are baptized, come in and live with Christ, we are sharing in the life of Christ. And so then maybe outwardly, we could be wasting away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day by the Spirit of Christ who was raised from the dead. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ initiated this first fruit of the harvest. And it continues until today. We are separated by Christ's resurrection by over 2,000 years. But our Lord Jesus Christ by rising became the first fruits to prove that He is not going to be the last. And even we'll see later as we celebrate the feast of the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit also is mentioned as first fruit. In Romans it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So we are new creations with the Holy Spirit that God has given us. So what should our response be? It's not enough for me to come tonight, say Christ is risen to everyone, enjoy my company, my time, enjoy good food, but set aside any personal response, any fulfillment personally of the feast. What's the principle behind the feast of the first fruits? The people of God were to know that they owe their best to God. Nothing that they have did not come from Him. If you think about it, it's risky for them to offer the first of their harvest to God. Who knew if there was going to be more harvest or not? But in doing so, they're learning faith, they're learning trust in God, who proved His faithfulness over and over again. For us too, it reminds us that we don't just give God our best, we also give God our first. That's His due. That should be our priority. The feast also was to mark their dedication, their fellowship with God who provides. The feast is a reminder that we are to be consecrated to God and offer ourselves back to the Lord for His use. In Romans it says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The Feast of the First Fruits speaks of being consecrated to God. Now that Christ has shown us the way, that He has become the first fruit, now we have the obligation to consecrate ourselves to God, to follow in His footsteps. May God give us the blessing to follow in His footsteps unto the resurrection of eternal life and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.